we've got three weeks left this summer before maybe some of you leave to go back to school or whatever you would go back to. I don't know, besides school. Maybe, you, uh, maybe you're traveling. That would be cool. But anyways, we've got three weeks left in the book of James. I've got this week, next week, and then our friend Logan Nyquist, he actually lives, uh, there's one house in between us, so two houses down, is that how that works? He's a neighbor, a very close neighbor, and he is going to bring it in, or close the book of James down for us, and then it came by, or it came up so fast, we have the beginning of the school year, August 24th, that is three weeks from now. Are y'all ready? Are you prepared? Are you you scared of that thought? They're, you shivering in trepidation? I don't know if you are, but anyways, after James, we're gonna go through the book of Acts, which I'm excited for, not all the book of Acts, that would take us years. Acts one through seven, really their time that is in Jerusalem, and it is gonna be incredible. We'll have a welcome party, we're throwing out all the stops, we're gonna have a silent disco, just party in here, and people are gonna smash into tables, maybe, potentially, if I can get HR to pass off on that. Uh, and it's just gonna be an awesome time. We're gonna have an engage retreat. We're gonna to go to Camp Copus. By the way, I mean, Grant Mulholland's gonna have more announcements on that later, but ladies, there's like 14, no, there's 13 spots left. Guys, there's like 17 spots left, so, I mean, if you're gonna go, you should go. We'll have a cool QR code on that later, but tonight, we're going to be in James chapter 4. We went through verses uh, 1 through 4 last week, and now we're going to continue on verses 5 through 10. Let me just tell you, last week uh, is, is a pretty heavy text. I had a lot of conversations uh, following uh, the bridge from last week, and it, there's just a lot of heaviness um, that comes with that as we, we see the brokenness of our hearts, uh, that the, the friendship with the world is enmity and hostility towards God. That when we are friends with the world, we have an emotional attachment connected to the ways of this world, living for uh, our glory, uh, ourselves, ultimately, in, in one thing. There is conflict. There's conflict with God. There's conflict with others, and there's conflict within ourselves. Conflict with others. There's constant uh, divisiveness, anger, frustration, uh, hatred that is fueling our world. Conflict uh, within ourselves. I mean, if you watch the Olympics, and every five minutes they have to talk about mental, and they don't have to, but they're talking about mental health and mental illness and all of the problems uh, that we have in here, and, and why that would be there is because we aren't right with God. We're friends with the world, and we are not right with God. And so from that, we're going to continue on in James's, and, and really hear what his argument is. And I'll just tell you from the start, verse 5 is one of the most uh, difficult to interpret passages that we have in the Scriptures. I've read so many commentaries, and I can tell you it is like a split on the meaning of this text. So uh, what I want to do as, as you run across these things, a lot of theologians call these splinters that you're just kind of rubbing across the text, and if it's like a treasure chest, the Word of God, there's splinters sometimes that, that get caught up, and it makes it difficult to just behold and, and worship God in His Word. And so we have to kind of figure out what the splinter is. And, and what, what I want to do, uh, because there are a lot of incredibly smart uh, men and women that are just on both sides of the spectrum here of what they would believe and think on this passage. And so I'm just going to 
communicate both and, and uh, why we got there and what those things would be. The good news in this is that the ideas themselves are not unbiblical ideas. Uh, and, and I'll just tell you where I lean as we jump into it. So let me read, and then we'll talk about it. Verse 5. Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose, that he jealously desires the Spirit which he has made to dwell in us? But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. So that's what we'll be talking about tonight. In verse 5, as I read it, that, that passage he quotes there is, He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. As I read that, depending on the translation of Bible that you have, it might be a different statement. Some of you might have a fairly close, close statement, but uh, the, the NIV, for example, says this, or the literal, which is closest in NIV, says this, the spirit which he has made to dwell in us lusts with envy. See, it's different. There's a different conversation, and, and really the people that translated the Bible, they have different inter interpretations of what that may mean. And let me just tell you the, the two options here. It's all about what that spirit is. What is the spirit that he is talking about that, that desires jealously or lusts with envy? What is that? What is the difference? Now, there's two arguments that we could kind of boil them all down to. One is the spirit that, he, that God has made to dwell in us is either the human spirit, like our soul, our nature, or it is the holy spirit. It is either our human nature, our human spirit, or the holy spirit. And with that, we have to then ask, is that spirit, if it is a human spirit, we are saying that it is human envy that he is talking about here. If it is the Holy Spirit, then it is divine jealousy. This is a big difference. This is a big difference. Let me talk about divine jealousy first. That this spirit of God, this really, as I read this, he jealously, God jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. So what it's saying there is that the spirit of God dwells in you, then he desires that you worship and walk with the spirit over any other thing. Now you've heard this before. This is not an untrue statement that God is a jealous God. It says God is a jealous God. Here's a an example, Exodus 3, or 34, 14, he says, You shall not worship any other gods, for the Lord is a jealous God. The Lord is a jealous God. Now, God's jealousy is not sin, because he is the only one that is deserving and worthy of our worship. But when we run to other gods, little g gods, and we idolize all of the created things, right? We talked about this, Romans 1.25, that when we worship and serve the creation rather than the creator, it's idolatry. It's spiritual adultery, and God is jealous because he caused the spirit of God to dwell in us 
in our soul, allegiance and worship and attention and devotion should be to God, to walk by the Spirit. And so when we don't walk by the Spirit, He jealously desires the Spirit within us, that there would be communion, that there would be worship in obedience. None of that is an untrue statement, right? That's not an unbiblical idea. I think there's a lot that we could pull from that. Uh, and, and this is a beautiful thing of God, that he is jealous for us to worship him alone, for allegiance to be him or his alone. And in that jealousy, God does not rest until we rest in him. God is not done with you if you are in Christ. God is going to pursue you and constantly sanctify you and work over your life until you are totally his. That is a beautiful thing. I hope that you don't uh, think that's annoying because that is such a beautiful thing for us to walk in and to believe and to know that God is jealous for us. And that jealousy for those that are in Christ is not him just smashing you to a pulp and sending you to hell. It's the God that gives a greater grace. And all that he calls us to, he supplies in his grace for us to run to him. It's not an unbiblical idea, but I think in the context, it really leans more to the second option, that it would be the spirit of man, the nature of man that he has caused to dwell in us, right? All human beings have a, a nature that is within them that has been corrupted at the fall. And what is true of this spirit, it's that is constantly idolizing creation. It literally, in the text, says the spirit which he has made to dwell in us lusts with envy. It lusts with envy. It desires everything that is around it that it does not have. I want this, I want that, I want these cars, I want these followers, I want these grades, I want this, I want that, I want that, I want, I want, I want. Says that is just true of the human condition. The nature that we have within us. Now why do I come to that conclusion? There's a lot of reasons. Honestly, grammatically, you can kind of see it both ways, but uh, that word, jealously, he jealously desires or lusts with envy. It's used 29 times in the New Testament, that word. And every single time, it is talking about a sinful human condition. That word jealously, jealous, jealously. You ever see a word, say a word so many times and you forget what it means? Uh, jealously or envy, depending on your translation, it's always talking about sinful activities. Sinful actions, sinful desires, brokenness. It is never, ever applied to God. And so James, in, in his mind, would never just say, oh, by the way, the sinful thing that humans experience, God also experiences it. He lusts with envy. No, it's talking about man here. So those are, first of all, those are just both of those views. Man, you can wrestle with both of those. Like I said, I, I think both of those are, are biblical ideas. We're not brushing into anything that's, that's dangerous. Uh, so wrestle with that, read your commentaries, talk about it, pray about it. Uh, but those are both of those. And I just tell you, I, I lean towards that will be the spirit of man that lusts with envy. And in the context, this is what verse 6, why it makes 
a ton of sense to me because even though we are so prone to wander, we are constantly wanting all of these things and running after sin. Unfortunately, true for believers, very much true for people that do not know Christ, do not have a relationship with him. They, are, they want nothing to do with God. They want everything to do with the world. And still, verse 6, but he gives a greater grace. He says, you lust with envy. It is your condition to run after sin. Contrast but his grace is greater. Greater than what? See, that's a comparative word. Greater than our sinfulness. Greater than our willingness to run against him. Greater than our rebellion. So here's the thing of God. In spite of our rebellion from him, he meets us with grace. In spite of our sinful nature, our wandering from him, our sinning, our disobedience against him, he meets us with grace. Maybe you've heard this, but there's no too far gone. You are not too far gone for the grace of God to, to meet you, to save you, to transform you. You are not unlovable. You are not unforgivable. You are not unredeemable because the grace of God is greater. Now, you might have a very intense and insane view of your brokenness. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing, because I think a lot of people, which we'll talk about in a little bit, have a pretty shallow view of their brokenness. Like, I'm a, I've done some things wrong, but I'm overall a decent person. I'm probably deserving of being saved. That's, that's the large problem that we have in our culture, is that we're pretty good, but we've never done anything too bad, so we'll probably be good when we get to heaven. So it's probably a good idea that we have a low view of ourselves in comparison to God and his perfection. But the problem with so many people is that they have a low view of God and his grace. But it has depths that we have not reached. It is far greater. Now, when we talk about grace, it's best to understand that it's unmerited favor. It is undeserved Favor. That is what grace is. The favor of God that we do not deserve. Can't work for it. Nothing in your life makes you worthy of it. And yet he chooses to favor some. God's favor given to sinners who are undeserving. And within that favor is forgiveness. Is love. The promise of heaven, of eternal life, the Holy Spirit to dwell in us in all the spiritual blessings that come with the Spirit of God that dwells in us. That is the favor of God that would come upon us. It's the ability to understand the word of God, to bear fruit in our lives, the joy of the Lord, the peace of the Lord that would guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, that's favor. That is grace. That is worth singing about. That's grace. And you're not too far gone. You're not unredeemable and unlovable. 
His grace is greater. But God gives grace to the humble. Look at the second part of verse 6. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to the humble because only the humble see and know their need for grace. Only the humble know their need for grace. I mean, the prideful person, we talked about this last week, they are self-centered, they are self-righteous, they are self-sufficient, they're selfish in every way. Say, I don't need God to have a good life. I don't need God to get the things that I want. I don't need God to save me. I'm good enough. The humble person thinks completely different than the prideful person. They're, the prideful person is unable to acknowledge their need for salvation and unwilling to surrender the thrones of their life to God. Even if you would see your need, you're like, man, I, I, I think I believe in this Jesus guy, and I know I'm broken, and I know all of this stuff, but I don't want to live for God. I don't want to change my life. I like being in control. I like living my way. And even if I saw in the scriptures or I heard that God says this is wrong, I think I'm just going to live my way. It's rampant in this world and it's pride. I'm going to turn over to uh, Matthew 5. This is the uh, Sermon on the Mount and it's, it's very fitting for this text. And really, the Sermon on the Mount, there's a lot of people that is being addressed here. Uh, but this is called the Beatitudes. We actually went through it last summer in the park, and there were people playing soccer behind us, and everybody was just watching the soccer game. So I don't know if you listened to it, so we'll talk about it. Uh, but anyways, this is where he, he says, blessed. Blessed, blessed, blessed in uh, chapter 5. And here's what he says. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Not talking about finances. He's saying those who are poor spiritually, they lack spiritually. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He says, blessed are the ones that are spiritually bankrupt. He says, well, how is that true? Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn. Why are they mourning? Because they're poor in spirit. So they know they, they, they lack before God. They know they are broken. They know they are lowly. They know they are not deserving of God's love, and they mourn over it. They're humbled. They didn't humble themselves. God humbled them. Blessed are the gentle, the meek, so that they would be broken, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So you poor in spirit and you hunger for it, you do not have righteousness, a righteousness that you cannot deserve. It says you will be satisfied. Context of this, the people that were around, yes, were disciples and, and other people, but largely were the Pharisees which if you could describe the Pharisees, it would be people that are rich in spirit. 
filled with good works and self-righteousness of how spiritual and religious they were. People that were not gentle, they were aggressive and, and overpowering of the people that were around them that they thought they were better than because of their good works. People that did not mourn but rejoiced in how good they were and how good they thought they were over other people. So Jesus is just knocking down the Pharisees, saying, you're prideful. You're prideful. And as I said earlier, people that are prideful are unable to acknowledge their need for salvation because they're unable to see their need. They're not going to lay down. They're not going to hunger and thirst for righteousness because they think they've earned it themselves. But look what God says, James 4, 5, or 4, 6. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. It's originally from Proverbs 3, verse 34, and 1 Peter 5, 5, quotes it again. God is opposed to the proud. So I, I don't want anything to do with you. He says, I'll take the humble, and I will give them grace. Now, verse 7 launches one of my favorite passages. You see there, I'll read it, submit therefore to God. Submit therefore to God. Therefore, it's, it's following the theological thoughts from verses 5 and 6. He's saying, therefore, in light of this truth that is above in, in the passage, in light of what I just said, here's what's true. In light of this humility that you need in order to receive grace, let's talk about what you now do. So verses 7 through 10 is the humble response to a holy God. It's the humble response to a holy God, and there's 10 commands there. There's 10 commands that he gives saying this is what humility looks like as you respond to a holy God who you fall short of and who opposes the proud, who opposes those that are friends of the world. So if you want to walk with me, do these things. It's the humble response to a holy God. So if you're an unbeliever in the room, listen up. This is for you. If you're a believer in the room, listen up. Because in three weeks, Lord knows who's going to be filling this room. Lord knows the people you're going to be sitting next to in class. Lord knows your family, your friends that do not know God, that do not have a relationship with him. And here's the invitation to salvation. So as we share the gospel, as we share the good news of what Jesus has done, say, here's what, I, here's what God is calling you to when he says, follow me. Now, this is not in a chronological, soteriological order where you say, okay, first this, and then this, and then this. These are the components of it, of what the invitation is. Verse 7, submit, therefore, to God. Submit. The word is hupotas, or hupotas. Mm, hupotas sounds better. Hupotas. We'll go with that. You can talk to your friends about that. Hupotas literally means to line up under. Hupo means under. 
So I guess toss means line up. Uh, hupotas, to line up under. It's the idea that if a general, a commander, someone that is above rank, above your authority, would show up, that you get in line because you're listening to him. He says, whatever you do, I obey. Your word is my command. I am under your authority. That's what he's saying here. God is our authority and we submit. Say, whatever you ask of me, God, I will do. I submit. I surrender. I give over the reins to my life. See, this is part of the call of God. So if you're going to know me, if you're going to walk with me, if I'm going to save you, I'm also going to be your Lord. And you follow me. Repent and follow me, meaning do what I say. That's a very simple way. Saying you live for me now if you have a life with me in Christ. We are getting into our place under the true authority of God. So that means we're submitting one to our need for a Savior. It's humbling. Submitting to the gospel that Jesus is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. We will not get to the Father through anyone else, through any other way than through Jesus. You have to submit to that. It's not you plus Jesus. It's Jesus alone. And it's submitting the reins of your life. I can tell you just my own life as an example. I was a sophomore in college. It was October. No, what? August, September, October. September? I think it was September. Yeah, it was September. <laughs> I don't know. It was a long time ago, okay? But it was September, and uh, it was over in the mill. Shout out to anybody that's ever been in the mill. That was the old uh, student ministry building, and college was kind of just like way there in the back, but I wasn't in college, so I didn't care. But anyways, a mill, and uh, these guys were preaching. Jason Fanning was preaching. Chris Wilson was preaching, and I was there for like four weeks, and I came to this point where I realized I was not a Christian. I had said I was a Christian for a really long time, and then I realized... I was not, and it came through a variety of things. Um, one, my now wife was one of the people. She like bought me a Bible. Her and her older sister dragged me to church every single week, and I was like, I guess I'll go. I don't know. And, and through that process came to realize I was not a Christian at all. I did not know God. I did not know the gospel. I wore a cross necklace because the football moms gave him out, and one of my friends was like, do you know what this represents? And I was like, I actually do not. And that's unreal, right? Like, I wore a cross necklace. I don't even know what a cross represented in Christianity, but I was like, hey, but I believe in God. Idiot. But anyways, that was me. And uh, so I'm listening, and all of these things, and it's just hitting me week after week after week. Like, I have fallen short. Like, I need God. I am broken. I'm sinful and deserving of punishment, of God's wrath. Jesus is the way to life, of eternal life, of, of walking with him. And all of these things began to unfold. And I just remember it clicked in my life. I was like, oh, all of this is so clear. And I had like no Christianese, right? Like not, nothing extraordinary. But I remember getting home on a Wednesday night. And I'm like, I, I feel like I raced home. I didn't really have a lot of conversations with people. Normally I was a social butterfly and I was the last one out. But I remember I left early, drove home, I got there. And I just like hit my knees at the end of my bed. I said, God, I get it. I see it. I know who you are. Like, I, I'm yours. 
I'm yours. I believe. And, and I didn't have any in professional words. I didn't know it, but I knew in my heart. I was like, God, I'm yours. Have your way. Have your way in me. I don't want to live for anything else. I don't want to live for myself anymore. I don't want to live for applause and fame and, and popularity and notoriety. I don't, I don't care about that stuff in comparison to you. I'm yours. Submit, therefore, to God that he would have his way. Let me give you a verse, 2 Corinthians 5.15. This is a memorized verse. You should do it. And he died for all, that being Jesus. He died for all so that those who live would no longer live for themselves but for him who died and rose on their behalf. See, that's what's happening here. This is what happened when Jesus died on the cross. He is redeeming people. He's not just saving people and saying, oh, live your life and go to heaven because he loves you and you're so wonderful, you special flower. Like, you're the point of this whole thing. It's all about Jesus. It's all about the glory of God. So when he redeems us and restores us to a right relationship with him, we get in line under him so that we would no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died to restore us back to that relationship. And salvation is a glorious thing. It's a thing to rejoice in. It's a thing to be so appreciative that you are saved. But remember, in that salvation, there is a change of authority. There's a change of purpose. He died for all so that those who live would no longer live for themselves but for him, 2 Corinthians 5.15. So let me just say this as we share the gospel to you, believers in the room, as we share the gospel with others and we are inviting them into a new life with Christ, we're also asking them to die. Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. So we can sometimes really sugarcoat the gospel and um, you don't have to sugarcoat the gospel. It's, it's good news in and of itself. But one of the things that we have to say is, hey, you're dying to your old way of life. You don't live for yourself anymore. Now let me say this, like, if you think, if you read back in the Gospels of Jesus, he is not a, a seeker-friendly person. He's not, like, sugarcoating it and, like, laying down little Oreos for people to be like, okay, and you can also follow me if you want. Like, that's not how Jesus, that was not his method of sharing the gospel, of building the church. People are like, hey, we want to follow you. He says, where do you live? We'll follow you. We'll stay with you. We'll do all these things. Like, I don't, I don't, he says, foxes don't have holes. Birds don't, he's, yeah, whatever. foxes have holes. Birds have nests. He's like, but the son of man doesn't have anywhere to lay his head. They're like, oh, that's weird. It's like, you're trying to tell us not to follow you. They go more. They're asking all of these things. Like, hey, if you don't take up your cross, like, don't follow me. He says, let the, the dead bury their dead. Like, he's just doing all of these things, and he's just, like, putting up these obstacles to these people and saying, I don't know if you want to get into this. He's like, I don't know if you really want to follow me. He's like, I'm just telling you the cost of following me is great. And for us, we're like, no, I got I to gotta present it perfectly in order for this person to believe. Let me just tell you. 
they don't see who God really is, if God does not open the eyes of their hearts, enlighten the eyes of our hearts that, that Paul would say, so no matter how much you sugarcoat it, they will not be saved. But on the contrary, if God opens the eyes of a heart, he says, my sheep know my voice, and then when they hear my voice, they will come. So if you share the gospel, no matter, how, no matter how many obstacles, no matter how high the cost, they say, I will follow him to death. So for us, all we do is we share the gospel in its truest form. We tell them this is the cost. We don't have to be afraid of the cost because you in this room are not afraid of the cost because you know the worth of knowing Jesus and life with him that you'll run through anything, you'll jump through whatever thing, you will follow him to death because you know the worth of Jesus. So as we share the gospel, say, hey, take up your cross. You're dying to your old way of life if you follow him. But it's worth it. It's absolutely worth it to submit your life to God. Keep reading in verse 7. It says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Part of submitting to God and living for him is resisting the devil. That word there in the Greek Excuse me, I thought I was going to burp, but I didn't, and here we are. Uh, part of that word in the Greek is to take, it literally means to take your stand against. He's saying it's time to take your stand against Satan, that you wouldn't live for him anymore. You wouldn't live for his ways anymore. Before salvation, every human being is a slave to sin. Let me prove that to you. Ephesians 2. I'll jump there. You can read there if you want. You don't have to. Ephesians 2, every person is a slave to sin. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. Friends of the world, right? We were living according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. The prince of the power of the air. Who's that talking about? Satan. Saying we were living according to him. Saying you thought you were living for yourself. But ultimately, behind all of these things, spiritually, you're living for Satan and his ways, the course of this world, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Before salvation, we are all slaves to sin, dead in sin. That's what we live for, sin. We could not do any other thing because we were in bondage to it. But in Christ, we are freed from sin. The penalty of sin has been fulfilled in Jesus on the cross. The power of sin has been broken by Jesus on the cross. You are a, sin, or you are a slave to sin no longer. So for the first time, you can resist Satan. 
For the first time, you can resist Satan. We aren't under that dominion of Satan anymore. But as you call people into this relationship with Christ, you have to know you've got to stand against Satan. You have to resist it. You can't live that way anymore. You don't live for those things anymore. You don't believe those things anymore. That's not your life. You resist him. So even when we are tempted, we resist. We stand strong. Another verse, 2 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man, but God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it, that you would resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So that's a, that's a promise. The promises of God are the grounds on which we run in faithful obedience. And so when he says, resist the devil and he will free, flee from you, take that promise and run in obedience. So I'm going to resist. I'm not going to give in to this thing that I want. Now, let me just talk about fighting sin for a really small moment. When you have the urge to punch someone in the face and call them all these really bad names, I want you to surrender. Say, what? Surrender not to that temptation, not to Satan who is behind that. I want you to surrender to God. See, these things are in juxtaposition. He says, submit to God, resist the devil. If you're going to resist the devil, you've got to submit to God. Practically, what that looks like in my own life, man, there's times where I'm frustrated. I prayerly, like prayerfully, out loud, say, God, I surrender to you. I'm going to live for you. I'm going to do it your way. I'm going to walk in obedience, even though I really want to punch this person in the face. I don't, maybe I say that, but hey, it's okay to pray honest. He already knows you want to punch him in the face. Like, you're not hiding anything at that point. Saying, God, I surrender. I'm going to act against what I want, and I'm going to line up under your authority. When you're fighting temptation, surrender to the Lord. Surrender to his ways. Surrender to his authority. Galatians 5.16, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. So how do I not carry out the desires of the flesh? Walk by the Spirit. Submit to God. Resist the devil. Verse 8, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. That's a promise. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. We draw near to God because we long for fellowship with him. We desire a, an intimate relationship with him, a personal relationship with him. And so we draw near. We draw near to worship God. We seek after him. Say, so God, I want to know you. I want to walk with you. I don't want to know what you're like. I want to worship you. Psalm 27 David says, there's one thing that I ask that I shall seek all the days of my life. So I dwell in the house of the Lord, gaze upon your beauty, and worship at your feet. He says, there's one thing that I'm going to seek the rest of my life, and it's to worship you. It's to know you. That's all I want, to draw near to God. And as we draw near to God, he will draw near to us. 
he will be found when we draw near to him genuinely. Let me give you just an absolutely incredible uh, example of this. Sorry, I know we're jumping around a lot, but this is just too good to not. Uh, Luke 15 is the story of the prodigal son, and it, it is such a good example of drawing near to God, and, and he will draw near to you. Um, this is a, a son, or two sons and a, and a father, and this son gets his uh, basically inheritance from his father early, not, not when uh, his father dies. He says, I'm going to take my inheritance now, but I actually don't want anything to do with you, old man. I'm going to go live my life my own way. And he lives it in sin and debauchery and all of these crazy things. And surprise, surprise, sin ends up in the pursuits of his life, end up in a pigsty where he is longing to eat what pigs eat. That's where sin's going to take you. And that's God's view of sin. It's eating a pig out of a pig trough. But anyways, he gets to this point where he longs for those things. In verse 14, now we had spent, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. Who do you think brought the drought? Who do you think brought the famine? It's God. God's drawing him in. He's drawing him in. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine, to feed pig. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. Verse 17, one of my favorite verses. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread but I am dying here with hunger. He comes to his senses. He says, even the men my father hires eat well. He says, and I'm a son. I'm his kid. He says, this life that I've been trying to live does not compare to life with the father. So he goes on, I will get up and I will go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. See that there's remorse and shame over his sin. He said, I've sinned against you and I am not worthy of a relationship with you. See the parallel. Because of what I have done, because of my sin, I am not worthy to be in relationship with you, so I'll just work to be around you. I'll just work to have the blessing. So he got up, verse 12, 20, so he got up and went to his father. He's drawing near. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. While he was a long way off, he was drawing near, and God saw and felt compassion, and he drew near. He drawed near to his son. Let me tell you, if you draw near to God, just genuinely, so I don't have anything to bring. I just want to know you. I want to have a relationship with you. God meets us with compassion, with grace, and he draws near to us. That's grace. That's a favor we do not deserve, that he would draw near. 
to us. 21, and the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. So he's rehearsing what he had said earlier. He's like, okay, Father, I have sinned, and I'm and going on all of these things. Verse 22, but the father said to his slaves, he says, hey, stop. Calls to his slaves, he says, quickly, bring out the best robe. This man's been in the pig slot, the pig swine, no, what am I saying? Pig slop. There it is. He's been in the pig slop. Sty, that's what I was trying to say. I was like, where am I? Where am I? Thank you, Cade. Uh, the pig sty, and he says, get the best robe. And the slaves are like, the, the best robe? You smell him? He's like, yeah, that's why I, I looked over there, because I smelled something. Anyways, and he brings the best robe and put it on him and put, on a ring, put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. Dead, brought to life. He was lost and has been found, and they began to celebrate. So you draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Second part of verse 8. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. This, this works well with submission to the Lord, lining up under him that we would live for him now See, part of that, as, as we're drawing near, we're scraping the gunk off our hands. I remember my bedside. I'm praying, so God, have your way in me. I'm done. I'm done with sin. I'm done living for myself. I'm done living for stupid tennis state championships. It's so stupid. I'm done with that. I don't want to live for lust. I don't want to live for pride. I don't want to live for the pleasures of my flesh. I want to live for you. It says, cleanse your hands. You see, our hands are symbolic of our actions, of our deeds, our behavior. It says, it's time for change. It's time for change, but it's as you are drawing near, saying, God, I'm done. It's not like this monthly buildup, like, okay, I got to clean my life up and then come to God, and then he will see me as worthy. So now you're fresh out of the pigsty, stinking it up, and he hugs you, he embraces you, he puts the best robe on you. But the son knows, he says, I'm done. I'm working for you now. I'm living for you now. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Your actions begin to change. Purify your hearts, the place of our intentions and desires. You double-minded. He's saying there's, you're living two lives. You got one foot in the church, you're kind of trying it out, you're here at the bridge, you're doing these things, you're like, I'm trying to read my Bible, but I'm also partying, I'm also in the drugs, I'm also in the drinking, I'm also living for these things, and you're trying to do both of them, and you're trying to pull them together, trying to make it work, and it's exhausting, and it's impossible, because you can't serve two masters. So you're going to love one and hate the other, so that's how it works. So it says, purify your hearts. To purify it is to make it singular. That if it was this jar of water or a bottle of water, if it's pure, meaning it's unmixed, it's unblemished, there's nothing out there else, else in there but water. 
It has one thing in it. And he says our hearts should be that way. It has a singular purpose, a singular intention and motivation, and it's for God. Our hearts would be pure and saying it's for you alone. There's nothing else mixed in here that I'm living for. I'm not just kind of living for you, but also kind of living for myself. It's you, and it's you alone. He says purify your hearts. Verse 9, be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Shame over our sin. Sorrow over the life that we lived, the things that we lived for. This is the prodigal son, right? He looks at all of these things and says, I've sinned against you, Father. And I'm not worthy to have a life with you. This life of joy and laughter and everything that he had, the party life that he was in, it's gloom. It's, it's mourning. It's a brokenness, a contrite heart over his life and his sin. It's a sorrow for rebellion against him. Verse 10, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. See the book ends there? Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. God is a lifter up of the lowly. That's what humble is, to be put in a low place. To humble yourself is to put yourself in the low place, which is the place that we belong. It's like, I'm not worthy of anything. I'm not worthy of a seat at the table with God. I'm not worthy of that. I'm going to put myself at the end just to, in, in hopes to be around him, to be near him, to draw near to him. God lifts the lowly. He exalts them. Trace that back to verse 6. He gives them grace. And we humble ourselves. This is, this is what genuine sorrow over sin is. This is knowing that we are undeserving. This is, this is what shame over sin that leads to repentance. When we know the kindness of God and say, I want to be with him. Because he's better than the life I'm living. His grace and compassion is worthy. They fail not. I want to be with him. So we change our mind, we change our ways, and we seek forgiveness, and we seek after grace, and we're met with that grace. That's good news. That's a great invitation. And so if you're an unbeliever in this room, you don't know where you stand, you don't know what's going on, you're like, I've got a whole lot of things that I'm just feeling through. Would you pray? To God? Would you pray this? There's no like just cool ritualistic liturgical thing that you have to pray the very right things and say all the right things, and this magical prayer just saves you. It's the genuineness of your heart. And would you just be honest before God and say, God, I'm yours. I submit, I surrender. Have your way. I live for you. I'm done with this sin. I, I don't want to live double life anymore. I'm yours. Man, would you, don't leave this place without having a conversation with me or somebody with a lanyard on. Like, don't leave this place. Or if you do, just go right to your bedside and pray there like I did. It's fine. It's a cool spot. A good story. Later on, don't leave this place. What else are you going to live for? What else are you going to do? If you're a believer in the room, what a message to proclaim. What good news to talk about. What grace to, to tell everyone about. 
What an invitation that we can walk people with to and say, hey, you, know, you want to know? You want to know the cost and the worth? Because they're right here. In this call to life, there comes with it a death of your old life, your old self, of your old ways. But oh, is there grace that he meets us with. Let me pray. Oh God, what an opportunity that we have to invite the masses into relationship with you. To tell of your goodness, your works, of what you have done in us, of your grace that we did not deserve, that we did not earn, and yet you bestowed it upon us. You lavished it upon us beyond any need that we could possibly have. You meet us with grace. So God, will we tell everybody? Lord, I pray that you would put that on our hearts and you would give us opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to share of this goodness, to invite people into relationship with you. So this has changed my life. And it can change yours. God, we're less than a month away from school being back and 40,000 people back at UNT. Tens of thousands of college students in the Denton area. Poor in spirit, broken, dead in their sin. God, would we not leave it in this room? The knowledge that we have the gospel that we know, would we not leave it here? Would we share it everywhere? Would we be bold with our faith and clear in what we communicate to them, the good news of what you've done? Everywhere we go, we would shout it, we'd worship you for it, and we would live in it. In Jesus' name.